Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise for our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I, will del- I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make, help, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. You have successfully made it here with the double whammy of spring uh, forward and also campus spring break, Lawrence Public Schools, all of those things. So well done. It's a, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Aaron Trent. I'm a member here at Free City and also serve as the director of the Navigators Campus Ministry at KU. And so again, it's a, it, it really is a joy to open the Word of God with you and seek to know Him and to grow in following Him alongside one another. In 1873, a man named Horatio Spafford received a telegram from his wife with only two words, saved alone. Delayed on business, Spafford had sent his wife and four daughters ahead by boat to Europe where he planned to meet them. On the way, their boat collided with another ship and sank quickly. 
and all four of their daughters died. Prior to this horrific incident, during the previous three years, their son had died and their business had been ruined in the great Chicago fire. And as Spafford traveled to Europe to meet with his grieving wife, he wrote the following song as his ship passed close by the spot where his daughters had died. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Spafford penned those words near the spot his daughters died. That was his song fixed on the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that gave rootedness, that gave ballast in the midst of deep grief and suffering. And since then, those words, that song has resounded forth and God has used that along many other songs to encourage, to focus, to give perseverance and endurance to others, crying out to God for their own deliverance that lifted their eyes as his eyes were to Jesus, to his finished work on the cross, to the sin-bearing substitute. And the question is for you and for me, do you have such a song? Do you have a song to, to cling to in the midst of those moments when you find yourself, as David did, sunk deep in a miry bog, helpless and needy? Do you have a song that you can sing that will lead you to continue to seek the Lord, that will keep you serving, trusting, leaning into Him? And Psalm 40 points us in that way and gives us such a song. Whether it is a song for you to sing in this moment, at this time, whether it's, it's an illness of a family member, 
It's a diagnosis of cancer. It's, it's the struggle in infertility and the, the longing for a, a baby. It's the uncertainty having sought and pursued the job you thought you would get and are waiting still for employment. Psalm 40 gives us that song. Lifting our eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory and encouraging us to continue with him. In short, I think we could summarize this psalm and say this, that God's deliverance, most centrally in the gospel of Jesus Christ, trains my, our affections and causes them to go public, both in a surrendered life and in verbal proclamation. We sing of all that God is and has done. And that singing, that rootedness in the gospel positions me, positions us to cry out to God with dependent trust, aiming at his glory among all peoples in my next moment of need. Let's pray and we'll get going. Father, we, we hear this song that Horatio Spafford wrote. We hear this song that David wrote. And it draws us in. It draws us in to know you, to trust you, to sing of you, that we might hold fast and endure. It reminds us of who you are and prepares us for the next moment of great need when we are pushed and compelled to cry again. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to see Jesus more and more clearly. Help us to savor him more and more dearly, to, to seek him and to hold fast to him. God, help us in this time. Open our eyes to see Jesus through your word. Amen. Well, as we come to Psalm 40, there are a few things that help situate us in this psalm. The, the first is uh, just that we have been working our way ever so slowly through the psalms in interim periods uh, when we are maybe stepping back for a week or two or we're in the midst of a, a break between other series. And so in some ways that makes it challenging for us because at this point we have to reach back to, I believe, somewhere around August uh, and try to reference what was going on in, in Psalms 37 and 38 and 39. One of the main themes in, in these Psalms is the theme of waiting, of sitting and looking to God, crying out to him and Wondering, trusting, anticipating his response. In Psalm 37, we have waiting, as it were, described promises of, of rootedness and establishment, but, but not seeing that waiting come to fruition. In 38 and 39, we have cries 
But again, no picture of immediate deliverance, left wondering and waiting for God's answer. Here in Psalm 40, we get a picture of David's reflections on God's answer. A picture of how waiting gave rise to singing, to rejoicing, and to more confident and assured asking into the future. If I were to uh, break out this, this passage into an outline, here is what I would do and, and I guess have done, and that then gives us some direction for where we're going. So in essence, this psalm is broken into two main parts. It's, it's bookended actually in verse 1 and verse 17 by just an appeal a personal appeal. And I think that encourages me, and, I, and, and it should encourage you too, that this psalm is deeply personal. It is a cry of one person to God for deliverance, and that deliverance having been given at the end of the psalm, a humble request for God's present deliverance again. But similarly, This encourages us as a people, as a gathered congregation in this morning and moving forward even as a church body, because this moves us out from simply a personal Jesus and me type of practice to think about our corporate congregational relationships and to consider how God's individual personal deliverances are intended not only to bless and save us as individuals, but to encourage and to awaken faith and worship and hope among all peoples. So this presses us in our culture that so values our autonomy and individualism to consider not only, God, help me in this moment, but then, God, how has your help and deliverance, how might it bless and serve those around me? Verses 1 to 10 are reflective. We might summarize it as simply saying joyful reflection on God's deliverance. And underneath those 10 verses, we we frame those in, in four sections that we'll look at together. And then verses 11 to 17, strangely in its order, lead us into a confident request for God's deliverance. Strange that we would first reflect on his deliverance and then ask for it. It seems like it would be more rightly ordered the other way around. But we'll see exactly why David intends to do this as we move into that second section. And then that second section moves us into an honest assessment of that new need. And then the particular requests that give rise from that new need. So first... Verses 1 to 10, joyful reflection on God's deliverance. Verses 1 to 3, David gives a personal account of deliverance. This is his testimony of God's working in his life. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. 
He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Let's think of the setting of this reflection. David looks back at a moment in time that he would describe as being in the pit of destruction. This is not only not simply a pit of discomfort, but one headed toward complete and total destruction. He describes it as a miry bog. If you've ever found yourself in deep mud to the point that when you try to move and maybe even to step, you find yourself instead of stepping out, moving down. This sense of being helpless, anything you try to do only seems to drive you deeper into what is stuck and sticking rather than drawing out from. David acknowledges his need. He is, again, stuck and helpless. And we don't know exactly what David was dealing with. And, and perhaps that is, that is a good thing for us so that we are able to, to take what we see here and then move beyond it. To apply this same sense of stuckness to our own lives. But whatever that might be, God has, has drawn him up. But again, here, here he is stuck in this place of impending destruction and he cries out to God. God, help me. Deliver me. He acknowledges his helplessness, looks beyond himself to one who will come to save. And it says then, God inclined. He leaned in as one would do who might kneel down to scoop up a crying child. God moves toward David. But before, before he moves toward him, David describes that interim period between crying out and God's deliverance as one of waiting. As one of waiting with patience and with perseverance. I think oftentimes when at least I hear the word waiting, I, it, it seems passive, perhaps even to the degree of fatalistic. Well, I've, I've cried out and I'm not sure what else to do and so I'll, I guess I'll just sit around waiting. But the idea of waiting, especially in the Psalms but throughout the Scriptures, is something much more than that. Waiting is something of, of activity. It's a sense of active anticipation of, of trusting hope that I have cried and I will wait here because I know to whom I have cried. I trust him. He will deliver me. And so this waiting is not one of, of leaning back, but a, one of leaning in. An active anticipation. One that actually moves us into a, a place of perseverance and patience as we participate with God in his work right where we are. Again, in, in Psalm 37, which paints a picture of what this waiting looks like in the midst of fretting, in the midst of anxiety, 
The psalmist says, trust. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Words of active, dependent anticipation. I will engage here. I will look to the Lord because I know who he is. I trust him. And in that interim period, however long it was, David looked. And God inclined to him. And God delivered him, not only out of that pit of destruction, but he he drew him up, out, and then set his feet on a firm place. The glory of, of not only being delivered from something, but brought into a place of peace and stability. But again, David does not stop there. It's not just a a sense of personal gratitude for God's deliverance, but God does something more. He puts a new song in David's mouth, a song of praise to God, the one who has helped him, the one who has delivered him. And he says, in that song, in that song that is sung, many will see and they will fear. They will wonder. They will, they will stand in awe of this God who has met David in his great need and has saved him. That this psalm, that David's vision for what has happened moves outward not simply upward to praise God, but that it begins to bear fruit by leading others, hearing his testimony, to trust. To trust in the Lord. This waiting and this deliverance leads to the blessing of many. From verses 1 to 3, we move then into not just a personal testimony, but that of a broader principle, what you could say dependent wonder of deliverance. In, in moments where maybe even you have found yourself crying out to God in need of deliverance, in that point of sinking, a pit of destruction, a, a miry bog, it's hard to see far beyond just God help me in this moment. Deliver me. But it seems that now, David, having been delivered, drawn out of this place of destruction into a place of stability and flourishing, now has the space and the perspective to draw out a principle that he wants all of us to see in this testimony. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. From that narrow need for God's deliverance, it's broadened now to see what God has done. And to speak to those who are listening, happy, flourishing, are those who will trust God. This God, 
the one who delivers. Do not instead turn to the proud who would look to themselves, who would trust in their own strength, or to the deceived who would trust in in a lie. But friends, instead, trust in the Lord. It is the place of flourishing, the place of blessing, the place of true and lasting happiness. And David goes on, again, not only to state that principle, but to move into a sense of wonder. He continues to reflect, given this one point of deliverance, to consider all that God has done. From a point of in this moment, and perhaps you find yourself there right now, that all you can see is God help me, help me, deliver me. And David reminds you, friend, trust in him. Remember all of his wonders. So many that we cannot number them and we have not time to tell of them. David continues to remind those who would hear him of God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness as the ones, the one who delivers. And this stands in contrast again to those who would turn and trust in themselves. Those who would turn and proclaim a gospel of self-sufficiency, of self-satisfaction, of self-righteousness that says, yes, I, I know I have been in a pit of destruction. I know I have been in a miry bog. But you know what? As I look back, I actually see my own work, my own strength being that which has delivered me. And so, friend, if you will simply lean in and do more, you'll make it. Hang tough. And there might be moments for that word of encouragement, but, but David says, don't fix your hope Don't set your gaze on yourself, but instead look away. Look away to Jesus, the one who has delivered you, the one who has delivered me, and find in him your place of trust. We move then from a a personal account, David's testimony, to then that sense of dependent wonder. Look at what God has done. Trust in him to then a sense of transformed surrender. And this, in some ways, is where the passage shifts, but in many ways where the psalm has always been leading. David writes, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. You see, I think oftentimes in in Psalm 40, we find ourselves at home in the first five verses. They make sense to us. This call for deliverance and the broader principle of the trustworthiness of God that encourages us as people to seek him. And then we get to 
verses 6, 7, and 8, and we think, what in the world is going on here? David has shifted, again, from testimony and wonder to now a sense of personal response that in some ways doesn't even seem to quite fit his own life. I think what is first happening here is that David is acknowledging that God's deliverance, his gracious movement to save and to draw him out, warrants a response. Not that he has or must work in order for God to deliver him, but he sees with wonder and awe that God in his grace, inclining to him in his moment of need, saves him. And that draws out a response for David. He acknowledges that the Old Testament system of sacrifices is something that it has been intended to reach all the way down to the heart. It's not simply enough, David acknowledges, to, given this deliverance, to bring an extra cow or a bull or a turtle dove to give thanks. But what God desires more than anything is David's heart and his life. That seeing the grace of God in his deliverance, that David would say, Lord, you've saved me. And now all that I am, all that I do, all that I think and feel and will, I bring to you. It's yours. And in, in the midst of this is this weird phrase, of you have given me an open ear. Oftentimes, your Bibles will have a small footnote that give a bit more description to what this might be more literally translated at as, and, it, and it's something along the lines of an ear or ears you have dug for me, which again, we think, what? Uh, and one of the things that happens, right, in, in as we go from language to language is especially, I think, what's happening here is that the sense of idiom doesn't translate. So we might use terms of endearment in the English language that to another, if we were to translate directly, would sound like utter nonsense. My, my wife tells me, I, I don't know French, but she does, that in French, one of the terms of endearment is essentially my little cabbage cabbage, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and so you, you hear it already that when we've gone from French, which I, 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 you know, oftentimes just sounds so sweet and alluring, but, but we translate it to, to English, and there's no way you can frame that to say, my little cabbage cabbage, right? It just, it just doesn't translate. And so similarly here, I think, I think that we're stuck trying to sort out what's happening here, even in this one phrase. And again, it, it seems that David is saying, God, you've done this. You're the one, having moved toward me and saved save me, that has even 
dug an ear to hear your word, to behold you as the deliverer, my helper, my savior that I come to. You've done this. And so again, because of your grace toward me that is so unmerited, I have not earned this in the slightest, I come to you. But there's more going on in this section than just the question of what's going on with that weird phrase. The New Testament picks up this section in Hebrews. And, and the New Testament looks back, the, the, the writer of Hebrews looks back on Psalm 40 and sees David's testimony, David's instruction, David's submissive, surrendered response given all that God has done in saving him and says, you know what? That was always a trajectory pointing ultimately toward Jesus. Listen in, in Hebrews 10. In these sacrifices, these are the, the sacrifices that, that David mentions in verses 6 and 7. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. He says this, these sacrifices, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The writer of Hebrews, again, is, is acknowledging this was always a temporary thing that God was doing, anticipating the finished and final work of Jesus. And it says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, given the temporary nature of these sacrifices, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, speaking of Jesus, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that system of sacrifices, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But what, what is, is happening here is, again, that, that the, the writer of Hebrews looks back at Psalm 40 and sees a broader trajectory, what you might call multiple horizons, that speak first to David's experience, but then even more perfectly and greatly in, in Jesus as the one who has come as the final, once-for-all sacrifice. And by that obedience, that finished work on the cross, we have been sanctified through that offering. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once-for-all. And lastly then, that moves us, if we were, to even think of a, of a third horizon, that in Psalm 40 we see David's deliverance and his transformed surrender, and we see that pointing to the, the perfect submission and surrender of Jesus, obeying the Father's will 
unto death that then grips our own hearts as we think about our own salvation. Looking back, considering the mercies of God, Romans 12, that draws us in similarly to understand David's response, Jesus' response, and say, knowing what God has done for me, I offer myself to you as a sacrifice, a living one, to trust you, to follow you. All I am, all I have is yours. So David moves from a personal testimony to a dependent wonder to a transformed surrender. And then lastly in this section, though, congregational proclamation. Seeing God's grace in deliverance, understanding he is worthy of our trust, surrendering his life, all that he is, David says, Lord, I will sing. I have not forgotten what you have done. And so I will proclaim it. He writes, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. David grasps that this work of God is not intended to stay only with him. But it is one to be sung, one to be proclaimed, to be spoken, that others might hear, that others might be built up, and that in the speaking God would be glorified. You see, that's why we sing. That's why we sing when, when we gather and we sing. We, yes, are singing to praise God But there is something about gathering and standing next to one another, especially on the days when it's hard just to drag yourself out of bed, let alone make it to gather with others. And it's hard in those moments even to utter a sound from your voice, to hear a brother or a sister in Christ sing words of praise that remind us of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And so, again, I wonder as as we reach a halfway point of of this psalm, do you you have that song? Do, Do you sing? Friends, will you sing? Seeing Christ, will you sing of all that He is, all that He has done? Parents, particularly, I plead with you, would you sing to your children? Would you allow them to see mommy or daddy worshiping God, singing to him, but also proclaiming to them all that he is and has done? You see, again, in in verses 1 to 10, we see three horizons that draw us in, that prepare us 
So importantly, for that which is to come at the end of the psalm, first, David faithfully and joyfully recounts God's deliverance, surrenders himself fully to God as the only sensible action, proclaiming to the gathered people of God the steadfast, never-changing love of God. But then, along with the writer of Hebrews, given our place, looking back upon the cross and the writing of this psalm, we see Jesus along this Davidic trajectory perfectly embodying this posture of obedient surrender to God's will, fulfilling every messianic promise, doing all of God's will for the joy that was set before him, and he willingly suffers on a cross, trusting God to be his own deliverer. And God raised him from the dead on the third day following his crucifixion, setting his feet upon sure, eternal footing, giving him power and authority over all heaven and earth. And Jesus now gladly sets apart to God all of his brothers and sisters who hear his proclamation of good news and believe. But then third, in this horizon, as we look at this section of the psalm, we see that all who trust in Jesus behold our own great deliverance. That for every deliverance we have experienced in the ins and outs of every day, this psalm leads us to lift our eyes to that great deliverance. Having been drawn out from the miry bog, helplessly bound for destruction apart from the gracious intervention of God in Christ Jesus. And so we now behold Jesus as all-satisfying and all-sufficient. Trusting in him alone and given a new song, we join in the great congregation proclaiming his praises. Knowing God's great mercy in Christ Jesus, again, we, we heed the words of Paul in Romans 12.1, we gladly submit our very selves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship and our reasonable service to him. All this rooted and grounded in the great deliverance of God, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And again, in, in seeing these horizons that lift our eyes to Jesus, we do not minimize the daily grace and goodness of God. He meets us as our strong and kind deliverer in countless ways. But we acknowledge that every gift of deliverance finds its source in blood-bought grace accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. Every thanksgiving of our lives is tributary to the great headwaters of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And we've spent the, the bulk of our time in these first ten verses because it is so important that his, David's joyful reflection on all that God has done in his deliverance that points us to sing and to savor, to, to see Jesus prepares us for the next moment of need. And so as we move into the rest of the psalm, we see that we, we move from joyful reflection looking back to that of confident requests for God's deliverance moving forward. In verses 11 and 12, there's first an honest assessment of a new need for deliverance. 
David says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me beyond, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. This section is, I find, striking in its incongruity. Almost in one breath, David goes from saying, I have come, I delight to do your will, and then he says, my iniquities, my sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. What do we do with this? Well, first we recognize that, again, this psalm points us beyond David to see its, its final fulfillment in the perfect and finished work of Jesus. And then, because of that, it prepares us in our next moment of need. Most especially in our moments where we see and acknowledge our own sin. Instead of drawing back, instead of wondering, I've tried. I've tried to deal with this. I've tried to guard my tongue, and yet I have spoken in anger again. I have tried to shut my eyes, and yet I have looked on what I should not look at again. And we wonder, have I used it up? Can I ask again for deliverance? Or am I now left to myself? And all that David has been doing up to this point is saying, no, there is more. Because there is a once-for-all sacrifice. One who came before us and said, I delight to do your will, and did it. All of it. So that we can confidently say, again, even back to back, Lord, I know you. I know you won't restrain your mercy from me. I know your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me, even, even in my sin. Even in my sin. These are the words that Paul speaks in Romans 8.32. And here again, this same idea. He who did not spare his own son. Paul looks up and sees that great deliverance. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can I, how can you, how can we be confident that God will deliver us again? Because of what he has already done in Christ. The greatest deliverance. We sing of God's great deliverance in Christ anticipating all of God's future deliverances. It's as good as done because of who he is and what he has accomplished. Again, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so now that positions us to pray, to cry out in that moment of new need. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. But again, it's not said, wondering, is there more? 
Is there enough? But confidently, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And he trusts. Seeing the justice of God, he says, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. You see, in this plea, and it seems in the midst of David's own sin that has overwhelmed him, others are piling on. They've been waiting for this moment. Yeah, we we knew this would happen. And now let's get him. This is the perfect time. And David says, God, I know you're just. I know you're just, in fact, because of because of what you have done in your great deliverance. And so, God, would you turn all of the intentions of these enemies justly back on them? A personal plea, he deals with enemies, he deals with the congregation, and he says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. That his prayer and plea, again, is not fixed only or solely on himself, but he confidently knows this deliverance will result in praise and glory among many. And so he says, God, even as you meet me again, do it again. Honor your name. Would your will be done and your kingdom come? Would your name be hallowed and set apart even as you draw near again to me? And in humility, David closes. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. That this prayer, faced with a new need, overwhelmed by his own sin, was all rooted and grounded in his joyful reflection of what God had already done. And so we too now are equipped, both with a prayer and a song, to sing in the moment of need. Maybe that's this moment, this day, or God in his grace is now preparing you for that which is to come. And so we now are ready to pray and to sing for his glory, for others' good, with eyes fixed on Jesus, reflecting on all that he has done all that he has bought for us in his gospel. In 2007, uh, I left for a summer training program in May and left uh, visiting my grandpa and grandma. While I was gone for about two months, I heard from my parents that my grandpa's health was rapidly declining. And at that same time that summer, I had come across a a beautiful hymn called Be Still My Soul. And one of the, the verses there says, Be still my soul when dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shalt thou better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe thy sorrows and thy fears. Be still my soul, thy Jesus can repay. From his own fullness, all he takes away. That song, rooted in 
seeing Jesus as an all-sufficient Savior carried me through those moments of uncertainty and ultimately when he passed away. And it was those lyrics to that hymn that I shared with my family as we gathered around his graveside service. It was eyes fixed on a joyful reflection of all that God has done for me in Jesus and all that God is for me in Jesus that gave me words to sing a new song, to cry a new plea in that moment of need. Friends, what is your song? What is your plea? May it be rooted and fixed in your own joyful reflection on all that Jesus is and does for you to the glory of God and to the good of many. And it is what we do in this meal that we celebrate each week that is the same thing. It's a reminder. It's, it's a joyful reflection on God's deliverance through Christ for us. We take communion each week celebrating that fact. And as it were, preparing for all that is to come this week. We do not know it, but we do know Jesus. And we know his faithfulness and trustworthiness, that he has delivered us. And so we come and we, we tear a piece of bread off, symbolizes his body broken for us. And we, we dip it in the cup, and it's grape juice in the glassware, wine in the stoneware, and we remember his shed blood. Again, seeing, savoring as it were, all that Jesus has done for us, delivering us from our sin through his death on the cross. This meal, this, this communion is for all who trust and treasure Jesus. If, if that's not you, then we ask, would you not take this? Because it is one of reflection on all that God is for us in his deliverance in Christ and anticipation that he will meet us again. But it may be, it may be, that for some of you, whether you trust and treasure Jesus or do not, that another action would be to pray. And that back behind these curtains, there will be members of a prayer team who would be glad to, perhaps you find yourself in that pit, that place of a miry bog, and you just you need someone to pray for you. Someone else who is able to see more clearly beyond what is facing you in this moment to ask God to meet you, to deliver you again, to remind you of all that Jesus is. We'll pray for us. Servers, you may come forward. Father, we hear again this song that Jesus has come, that Jesus saves, that Jesus is our great deliverer. Father, fix our eyes on him. Even in communion, prepare our hearts again to hold fast to you, to sing of you, 
to cry to you as your children, waiting and yet not without hope. In Jesus' name, amen.